And Father, now, as we come to your word, Father, once again we come just as, as beggars. We come as, as sinners in need of Christ every moment of every day. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to every need. We thank you for the, the sufficiency of it. We thank you for the inerrancy of it. We thank you for the inspiration of it. We thank you for the profitability unto us that it has, that we would be equipped for every good work. We pray now, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be working within us to grant us illumination, to grant us understanding, and not only understanding, but conviction to act upon it in light of what your word says, that Christ may be glorified in our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 5. We will be continuing our study in John chapter 5 this week by looking at verses 24 to 30. Now this past week, some of you, if you follow me on Facebook anyway, you may have noticed that I posted the results of a, of a recent poll or a recent survey that revealed that fewer than half of all people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians would actually qualify as being pro-life. Uh, most of you probably know that it's, it's my conviction that every Christian should be pro-life. Um, I, I believe that if a person understands the scriptures, and not only understands the scriptures, but is willing to submit their life, submit their worldview, submit every understanding and ideology that they have to scripture, they will be pro-life, and there would be no exceptions to that. But I have to admit that as, as I saw the results of this poll, um, yes, it made me very sad to see that. But at the same time, I wasn't extremely surprised to learn that so many people in the church who identify as evangelical Christians uh, are just terribly confused. Uh, because 20 years ago, uh, I mean, you could see the same thing. You could see confusion resulted in surveys uh, in the church. Uh, there was a Gallup poll 20 years ago that revealed that 47% of Americans believe in reincarnation. Uh, that is, they believe that their soul will be somehow transported to a different body, maybe not even a human body, by the way, after death. But here was the real shocker. The real shocker was that 20% of those at that time who claimed to be Christians also believed in reincarnation. How is that even possible? It's either because they don't know what the scriptures say, or it's because their worldview, their, their ideologies... Um, aren't informed by what Scripture says, either willfully or not. So it's very important for Christians to understand what the Bible teaches in general. I think we would all agree with that. But if there's one subject that just towers above all other subjects in terms of importance for us to have a deep understanding of, a solid understanding of, it's the issue of what happens after we die. What happens after we die? It was, it was George Bernard Shaw. You've probably heard what he said. He joked that, quote, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die, end quote. 
And uh, of course, we can all say uh, that's a fact, right? Uh, If the Lord tarries, uh, we will all face death one day. We will all face death one day, and there are no exceptions to that. So given the fact that this is the case, you would think that people in general would spend a lot of time thinking about and preparing for that day. And yet, the reality is that people tend to put it on the back burner. They convince themselves that, you know, well, I I don't want to think about this today, so I'll think about this some other time. And then some other time comes and they think, oh, I don't want to think about this yet, so I'm going to think about this later. And it just gets pushed back and back and back. And I'm, and back. And I'm convinced that this is because fallen people cannot bear to set their minds on what they know to be inevitable. They would rather procrastinate in regards to preparing for the most important day of their existence than to set their minds on and to think about having to face God's judgment. Now, in the passage that we began to look at last week, we saw Jesus addressing the Jewish leaders who had accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath laws by healing the crippled man uh, by the pool at Bethesda. Uh, It's possible, as we saw, it's possible, if not likely, that Jesus was actually addressing the gathered Sanhedrin. They were formal charges, and he issues a very formal defense of himself. And as he has done so, of course we would expect he's really ruffled some feathers, uh, to say the very least, because not only has he denied that he broke the Sabbath laws by healing this man on the Sabbath, but he also claimed to be God in the flesh. So what we saw was in verses 17 and 18, Jesus claimed that he was equal to God in terms of his nature, equal to the Father in terms of his nature. In verse 19, he claimed that he was equal to the Father in terms of his work. In verse uh, 20, he claimed to be equal to the Father in terms of his knowledge. In verse 21, he claimed to be equal to the Father in terms of his sovereign right to impart life to whomever he wishes. In verse 22, he claimed that the Father had given him the right to judge all of humanity. So again, he's claiming uh, to be equal with God. And then in verse 23, he claimed that he was equal to the Father in terms of his worthiness of honor and worship. So in a nutshell, in this passage that we looked at last week, Jesus repeatedly claimed to be God. I mean, what mortal man could ever make claims like these? But we're not talking about just any mortal man here. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He claimed to be God repeatedly. He proved himself to be God repeatedly. And as a result, we know that the Jewish leaders sought all the more to kill him. While modern people will say, I'm not sure that Jesus ever claimed to be God, the people who actually were right there before him they understood very clearly what Jesus was claiming. So in the verses that follow, in the verses that we're going to be looking at today, Jesus is going to continue to defend his right to have healed on the Sabbath, and he'll continue to assert his deity. Now one of the things, if you've got your Bibles open, if you look at verse 20, one of the things we saw Jesus say was this. He said, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And then he says this, And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Now what are 
these things that Jesus is referring to? What are these greater works? Well, Jesus has actually already touched on them briefly. In verse 21, he claimed to have the right, uh, the sovereign right uh, to grant life to whomever he wishes. And then in verse 23, he claimed to be the one who will judge all of humanity on the last day. These are the greater things that Jesus was talking about. These are two things that he's going to elaborate on in the passage that we look at today. So as we look at verses 24 to 28, we'll see Jesus discuss his sovereign authority over every aspect of salvation, every aspect of the eternal life which is found in him and in him alone. And then what we'll see in verses 29 and 30 is a terrible warning to those who do not believe, a terrible warning of judgment that is coming to everyone in the world. The point of our passage today is that because Jesus has the sovereign authority to grant life and to judge sin, we need to make sure that we're ready to stand before him and to not procrastinate, to not put it off until it's too late. The salvation that is found in Christ alone starts not with man's desire to be reconciled to God, but with God taking the initiative with an individual. And this must be so because man's condition by nature is not that he is spiritually wounded. It's not that that uh, natural man is just spiritually sleeping and needs somebody to wake him up or or to, to heal him. Rather, man is, by nature, spiritually dead. So let's start by looking at verses 24 to 26. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself." These three verses, just by themselves, reveal absolutely huge amounts, just volumes of information about Christ's sovereignty in salvation. This is Jesus elaborating on what he said back in verse 21, that the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. See, the way that The way that people, the way that fallen man naturally thinks is that he must take the initiative with God if he is going to get right with God. Uh, And and that's what you see in every single religion in the world is the idea that I must do this and I must do that so that God will not be mad at me anymore. You must do this. You must do that in order to appease the wrath of God. Now, why do you think it is that every religion in the world has this idea that they must do this and do that in order to appease God? Because fallen man, by his nature, understands that he's under God's wrath. Romans 1. It's because fallen man is fully aware of the fact that he is under God's wrath. But instead of begging for mercy, 
Instead of honoring God by believing and submitting their lives to God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what does fallen man do? He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Fallen man then ends up with the idea that it's up to him to make things right with God. But what Jesus says here completely obliterates that ideology, just completely blows it out of the water. Jesus is telling us here that salvation does not begin with man's initiative or with man taking action to please God, but that it begins with God. It begins with God's actions to reconcile with man. See, in fallen man's wisdom, he thinks that salvation and spiritual life are a reward for doing something, maybe even a reward for believing And there are actually scores of legitimately saved Christians who even adopt this perspective. The idea that salvation is a reward for believing. It's a consequence of believing. But that's not biblical. The Bible never teaches that salvation is a reward. What does it teach? It teaches that salvation is what? It's a gift. It's a gift. The Bible teaches that it is unmerited, that it is undeserved, that it's an unearned gift that is freely given and freely received. Eternal life is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty, as Stephen Lawson would say. Many people will take these verses here and they'll see it uh, sequentially, but it's not not intended to be sequential. They'll, They'll see it backwards, See, they see it as the receiving of eternal life being a consequence or a reward of believing. But the Bible doesn't teach that receiving eternal life is a consequence of believing. That's that's viewing salvation as a reward. That's viewing it as, as earned. Rather, what the Bible teaches is that believing is a result of living. Believing is a result of receiving, having received eternal life. And that's what Jesus says here in very plain language. If you notice, look at verse 24. There's not a sequence. It doesn't say, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me will receive eternal life or will be granted eternal life. No, what does it say? It says, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So in the language that that philosophers and theologians and and smart people would use, the way our Lord words this, eternal life is what we would call a necessary condition for hearing and believing. Now, Jesus actually said the same thing just with different words a couple chapters ago. So so this isn't something new. This is something we have already looked at very uh, intently. If you remember his conversation with Nicodemus, do you remember what he said to him in verse 3? He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you're not born again, you can't see. You have to be born again first in order to see. James, or as R.C. Sproul puts it, he put it this way repeatedly. I mean, you can look up on YouTube and he's got probably 20 videos where he says this. He would say, quote, regeneration precedes faith, end quote. James Montgomery Boyce, 
another great theologian from yesteryear. He put it this way. He said, quote, If the possession of eternal life were the result of believing, then the verb should have a future verb. And he goes on to say, actually, the present tense of the verb is used to indicate that the one who believes does so because he already has the life of God within him, end quote. So this is simply to say that a person who is dead can't do anything. A person who is dead can't believe. He must have life in order to believe. I mean, that makes perfect sense if you think about it. And Jesus uses death as the way he describes humanity here. A person who's physically dead can't do anything to help themselves in the physical sense. They're entirely at the mercy of God. And Jesus says here in verse 25 that man's spiritual condition by nature is to be spiritually dead as well. That likewise puts us entirely at the mercy of God. So Jesus says truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And we can be sure that he's not talking about physically hearing and he's not talking about all of the dead hearing because even the people of the Sanhedrin, are they hearing him? Well, of course, he's right there in their presence, but are they living? No, they're not. So we should start by seeing the repetition from what Jesus said immediately prior to this. In verse 24, he said, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And now he says that an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So what we must first see here is that a person who is physically dead cannot hear. But we realize that Jesus isn't speaking here on a physical level. He's speaking spiritually here. So he's saying that man's natural condition, again, is not that man is by nature spiritually ill or that man is by nature spiritually sleeping. He's not saying that natural man merely needs to be woken up so that he can listen and hear. He's saying that they must be brought from spiritual death into spiritual life. They must pass from death to life. And only when living will they be able to hear and believe. Remember what the consequence of Adam's sin was in the Garden of Eden? God warned them, if if you eat from this tree of good and evil knowledge, what's going to happen? You'll die. And they did. They didn't die physically, but their nature. They died spiritually. And so would all of their offspring be born spiritually dead because that became man's nature. So that's the, sec- the first thing. The second thing is that those who have been brought to life, again, spiritually speaking, will have the ability to hear and respond to the voice of the Son of God. Now again, we, we know that the Jewish leaders who are gathered here can hear him, but they don't believe. So, so what does it mean to hear In this context, it's presented as a parallel to believing. Hearing and believing are are thus uh, kind of seen as the same thing. We should understand them as being essentially the same thing. Hearing is believing. But if this sounds surprising, 
if any of this seems, seems shocking to you, this is really nothing new. This is the way we see God working with man throughout all of Scripture. The last book study we did was Genesis. Uh, anybody remember the conditions surrounding Abraham's uh, salvation, his, his conversion? Uh, do you remember that verse where God looked down and said, you know, I, I really need to find somebody who's just a little bit good, a little bit righteous, who, who can, uh, be, who, who's willing to be used for my purposes? Of course you don't remember that verse, because there was no verse that said that. That's not what happened. We saw in Genesis that before God came to Abraham, Abraham was a devil worshiper. Uh, Joshua 24 verse 2 says that Abraham served other gods before God called him. Abraham was spiritually dead. He was not seeking God. He did not love God. He was not good. He was not righteous. He was not even just. So why did God choose him of all people? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to, and it was his sovereign right to do so. It didn't have anything to do with something within or about Abraham. It had everything to do with God showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and giving grace where he decides to show grace. And that is the pattern that we see throughout all of Scripture. Uh, When was Moses called by God? Uh, When he was just a baby floating down the waters of the Nile. When was Jeremiah called by God? In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God says, Behold, I formed you in the womb, and I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. In other words, I set you apart. Uh, I have appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And if you remember, Jeremiah didn't even want to be a prophet to the nations. He was called as a young boy, and he tried to resist God. But God said, no, this is, this is what you're called to do, and this is what you're going to do. Uh, what about John the Baptist? When was he converted? While well, he was still in Elizabeth's womb. He was converted when his mother found out about Mary being pregnant with Jesus. What about Paul, the Apostle Paul? He was called by God when he was still an enemy of Christ who was not seeking God. He was persecuting Christ. He was seeking to murder Christ. He wasn't seeking God, but God sought him. And it's the same with all of the disciples. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors who were just doing their everyday work when they were called. They were in the middle of of practicing their trade when they were called. They weren't seeking the position of, of being a disciple. They weren't seeking God. Now, Jesus would tell them very explicitly later in the, John's letter, uh, or John's uh, narrative, he would tell them very explicitly, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So this is what we see throughout Scripture. In all of these cases, God's choice was sovereign and final. He was the one who took the initiative. Once he had taken the initiative with a person, that person followed. And and there's not one case of God taking the initiative and a man not following. And that's the same pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. In the next chapter, Jesus will say in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All. All. And this is the only explanation, friends, for why any of us here today are in Christ. It's not because we took the initiative. It's because God took the initiative with us. Now, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying you didn't choose 
to follow Jesus. I'm saying you did. But what I'm saying is that God took the initiative within you and opened the eyes of your heart, removed the veil from your heart in order that you would see the glory of the gospel and believe. That's why we choose to follow Jesus, because God reveals him to us. Remember Peter, when Jesus was asking, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but who? But my Father who's in heaven. God takes the initiative. Now what people who don't understand this will often do, or commonly do, is they'll appeal to a metaphor that you don't find in Scripture to illustrate salvation. For example, uh, they'll liken salvation to God throwing out a life preserver to someone who is drowning. Everybody heard that illustration before? Uh, That's not a biblical illustration. You don't find that anywhere. But the Bible does give us some biblical illustrations of salvation. So let's think of one. What about Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones? Again, that's a picture of humanity. These were dry bones. These people were long dead. What can bring them to life that they might believe? Not them. Only God can. Only God, by his grace, imparting life to those who are dead. Jesus gives us another illustration later in this book, in, verse, in, in chapter 11, when he takes his time to get to his friend Lazarus, who is deathly ill. And eventually, Lazarus does die, and he's buried. And after four days, Jesus stands before the tomb, and we read in John 11, verses 43 and 44, that he, quote, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. This man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. See, the result of that miracle was that the Jewish leaders could no longer deny Christ's claims to be God. And so they would conspire to kill him, to silence him once and for all by murdering him. But all that starts here in chapter 5, in the passage that we're in the middle of studying this week, where Jesus claimed to have the sovereign authority to grant life. And then he proves it in chapter 11 by raising Lazarus from the dead. But that's not just a picture of Christ's sovereign authority over physical life. It's also a picture of his sovereign authority over eternal life, spiritual life, salvation. He says, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Friends, what we have to gather from this is that it's not enough for you to come to church every week. It's not enough for you to wake up early every morning and read your Bibles. It's not even enough for you to pray regularly. Those things are all very good, and those things are all very necessary, I would say. But we have to take it further than that. It must involve more than that. We must ensure that we hear Christ. That's just as important today as it was almost 2,000 years ago when these words were spoken by our Lord. 
Just as importantly, does understanding that God's sovereign grace is entirely responsible for our salvation not fill our hearts with thanksgiving and gratefulness? It should. More so than if our salvation had anything to do with us. See, if you can say, well, God chose me because he knew that I would choose him, or God chose me because of something about me or something within me, or because I'm fill-in-the-blank, it's not going to make you as thankful or as grateful as you would be if you only realize that there was nothing about you, nothing good, nothing intelligent, nothing beautiful or even useful about you for God, but God due to nothing but his own sovereign right to show mercy, gave you life so that you might hear and believe and follow Jesus. See, one of those views says God chose me because of something about me. And the other says God chose me despite everything about me. See, and with the first one where it's something about you, you have something to boast in. You can say, God chose me because I, whatever. But Scripture makes it very clear, repeatedly, by the way, that we have absolutely nothing to boast in except the Lord and the grace of God that's been given to us. Jesus would say, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. Kind of repeating what he said here. Who hears his voice? Only his sheep. See, confidence in Christ's salvation or uh, sovereign authority over salvation, to give life to his sheep has driven all of the greatest missionaries that have gone overseas since the Protestant Reformation. Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, Jim Elliott, uh, John Patton. If, if, if you read any of their biographies or autobiographies, they all went knowing that Christ's sheep hear his voice and thus there was no way for them to fail. All that they had to do was go over to some foreign country where the word of God was not being proclaimed and proclaim it, and God would do the rest. And in the same way, having this understanding enables and and drives our evangelism because we know that God's purposes will never be thwarted. God's purposes will never, ever fail. His sheep hear his voice. Now, they might not hear it the first time. They might not hear it the fifth time. They might not hear it the hundredth time. They might hear it the eight thousandth time. But he promises that his sheep will hear his voice and they will follow him. This eternal life that he's talking about here, it's something that never dies. It's something that never ends. If you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal, right? If God wanted to give you a 10-year life, you would live for 10 years, no more, no less. And when he gives eternal life, it is eternal. It starts at the moment of regeneration, and it lasts forever, which is why we don't fear death, by the way. If you could lose it, you would lose it. If, if you, and if you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal, right? It extends from the moment that God regenerates the sinner into the present and into the future. But the beauty of this is that Christ is sovereign over every aspect of salvation. Let me say that again. Christ is sovereign over every 
aspect of salvation. God doesn't only ensure that salvation would be made available by sending Jesus. He did that. But he also ensured that it would be actual and that it would be applied. He didn't send Jesus and then just hope for the best. No, he had a plan from all of eternity past to redeem a people for himself. And so to that end, he also secures the salvation in ordaining that we would hear and believe the gospel. He secures every aspect of our salvation. But Jesus isn't only sovereign over life, both physical and spiritual. He also has sovereign authority over physical life, judgment, and death. So let's continue looking at verses 27 to 30. He continues saying, And he, the Father, gave him, the Son, authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And he concludes by saying, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So you notice the contrast here. The Father has given Jesus the sovereign right to judge. But Jesus says, don't marvel at that. And at that, I, I, I assume that what he means is that these people were scoffing or um, making jokes or ridiculing him when he said these things. He says, for an hour is coming. Notice that he doesn't add, and now is. He's talking only about the future. An hour is coming when all the dead, the physically dead, that is, will hear his voice and come forth. Again, he's talking about the future here. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. But Jesus is not talking about everyone being saved here. This isn't a resurrection into eternal life for everyone. He's talking about the literal resurrection of the dead that comes at the end of days. But Jesus says that the Father gave this authority to him. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. That's his explanation. But in order to understand that, we have to understand that this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which said this. It was a prophetic word given to Daniel, where he wrote, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. There it is. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's Jesus. That's the Son of Man who's given this dominion over this kingdom. The one who was given everlasting dominion over a kingdom which will never be destroyed. See, friends, the world today has two kinds of people. 
those who are in Christ and thus possess eternal life, and those who are not in Christ and thus do not possess eternal life. But only those with eternal life will enter the kingdom of Christ, will enter the kingdom of God, will enter the kingdom of the one who is like the Son of Man. Christ will be the one to separate the living from the dead. That's, that's affirmed in the Apostles' Creed, if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. But what we have to understand is that this is both a wonderful and a, and a terrible day. It's a, it's a wonderful and a glorious day for those who are in Christ, those who are living in Christ. But it is a terrible day, a most dreadful day for the dead. Now, there are three really important doctrines that Jesus touches on in, this, in these three verses, four verses uh, spoken um, for our understanding of what is to come. The first thing that he touches on is that physical death is not the end of your existence. It's not the end of anyone's existence. Physical death is just physical death, but there is more beyond that. Fallen man wishes that death would be the end. That's what every person who understands but has suppressed the fact that they are under the wrath of God, that's what they wish it could be, that death would just be the end. But of course, this is, this is true of Jesus, that death wasn't the end for him. First and foremost, it's true of him. He gave his life, he died, uh, he was buried, but he demonstrated his power over physical death by rising again on the third day. Because of Christ's resurrection, there is no doubt that death is not final. It wasn't final for Jesus, and he's telling us right here that it won't be final for anybody, including his enemies. So the first thing that he touches on is is that death is not final. Secondly, because death isn't final, it's not an escape It's not an escape from existence. Rather, there are two separate realms of existence which lie beyond death. One that is glorious and one that is ghastly. And so Jesus is spelling out for us here that there will be a physical, bodily resurrection unto life for those who are in Christ and that there will be a resurrection into judgment and condemnation. For unbelievers, Jesus says, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, if, if we're being honest with what he said there, that presents a really serious problem for us. Because scripture also assures us that on our own, none of us have done good. And in fact, none of us are even capable of doing good. Romans chapter 3, verse 12 says, There is none who does good. There is not even one. So then, how does anyone enter into this resurrection unto life? Now, it's a good question. It's a very important question. And there are two answers to help us uh, understand this. And both of, these, uh, both of these answers are important. The first answer is that while it is very true that not a single one of us on our own has done good, Jesus has. Jesus has. In fact, Jesus was nothing but good. He never had one moment where he was not good. He always walked in accordance with the will of the Father. He never sinned. He never strayed. He was tempted as we are, 
and yet he was sinless. The good news is that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Christ's moral goodness, his perfect sinlessness, is credited or imputed or transferred to all who will repent and believe. See, Jesus not only upheld the demands of God's holy and perfect law, but he also bore the wrath of God against his people's sin as a substitute. See, sin doesn't go unpunished. God is just and he must punish all sin, but Christ bore the wrath that we deserve in our place, in in the place of all who would hear and believe. And thus, thereby, God is both the just and the justifier of all who believe. And so when we stand before God one day, we stand not in our works, because that would render us guilty, but we stand in the works of Christ. We stand in his merit, not ours. Our merit is gone. What what we deserve has been dealt with. Our works, our sinful works were all transferred to Jesus. His perfect righteousness was transferred to us. The second answer is that while it's true that on our own there is none who does good, it's also true that part of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. James 2.17 says, Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. He's speaking of good works there. He's not speaking of bad works. He's speaking of good works, evidence of a real justifying faith. In other words, it's a faith that doesn't manifest, if if it's a faith that doesn't manifest itself in good deeds, it's not a saving faith. It's a dead, useless faith. James will go on to say, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What he means there, he's not denying the doctrine of sola fide. He's not denying that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Rather, what James is saying there is that real faith does something. As the reformers would say, it's a, it's, we're saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by a faith that is alone. In John Calvin's words, he said, quote, Without the pardon which God grants to those who believe in him, there never was a man in the world of whom we can say that he has lived well, nor is there even a single work that will be reckoned altogether good unless God pardons the sins which belong to it, for all are imperfect and corrupted, end quote. That's what we have to see here, based on what Jesus is telling us is that there are two destinies that await humanity. Life and glory and an eternally conscious, tormented existence in hell. One is by grace, the other is by justice. But the thing is, nobody gets injustice from God. The question then becomes, how do we receive this grace? And this brings us to the third great doctrine that Jesus touches on here in verses 27 to 30, that the destiny into which a person will enter is determined by their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, everybody has a relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's either that you are a convicted criminal standing before a righteous judge, and that's your relationship to him, or 
by grace, you're a friend. And more than that, a son of God, adopted into his family. If you have dishonored him, if you've dishonored Christ by not repenting and believing in him alone for salvation, then you will have to stand before him on that awful day in your own works, and you will have to stand on your own merit. No matter how good or how righteous or how just you might think you are in your own eyes, the reality is you've sinned, and God must punish sin. So then the question becomes, who's going to pay for it? You? See, if, if you have rejected God's Son, if you have rejected His Word, and you've rejected His ways, what other option have you left Him? And so because the Son doesn't seek His own will, but the will of the Father, as He says here in verse 30, His judgment of you will be just. But my prayer is that if you have not repented and believed in Christ, if you have heard His voice today, if, if you're trusting in yourself or your own deeds or anything other than Jesus, I pray that you see the utter foolishness of it. And, and that if you see the foolishness and the utter futility of standing before God and claiming to be worthy of entering into His kingdom, into His eternal glory, and if you desire to stand before Him in Christ's perfect righteousness instead of your own, that is, if you desire grace instead of justice, then believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe that he is who he claimed to be. Believe that he is the Son of God who took on flesh, who bore the sin of his people and the wrath of God in their stead. Believe and you will be saved. God has promised that all who believe will be received and loved just as much as he loves and receives his own son. Because we're in his righteousness, not our own. And if you will do that, you will no longer be a slave to sin. Instead, Christ will be your master. And he will apply all of his promises to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone. Friends, this is a day which is coming. A divine summons that neither you nor I nor anybody can escape. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's nothing to fear because the price of our redemption has been paid. Our sin debt has been paid in full. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Psalm 89, 9 Nine, sorry, 98.9 promises us he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. But friends, on that day, you do not want God's justice. You want his mercy. You want his grace. And that grace is only found by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ now. While there's time. Do you believe that he is who he claimed to be? Do you, do you trust him with your salvation? Do you trust him with everything that is necessary for your salvation? 
Because it really is a matter of life and death. But because Jesus has the sovereign authority to grant life and to judge sin, we must make sure, we must make sure that we are ready to stand before him. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for the defense that Jesus makes, not only of his deity here, but of the sovereign authority that he has over life and death. As we examine our hearts, Lord, none of us can deny that all we deserve is your wrath. All we deserve is your judgment. And we acknowledge that while we did choose you, it was you working in our hearts, removing the veil from our hearts, that we might see and believe in your Son. And so you get all the glory. The glory is all yours. And our hearts are filled with thanksgiving because of what you have done. Father, we pray that we would see how gracious you have been to us and that our lives would be impacted by that. That we would see everything through this lens that we have been redeemed, purchased by the shed blood of Christ. And therefore, he is the one who's sovereign over any decisions that we make. He's the one who gets to say what's right and what's wrong. Forgive us, O oh Father, for the times when we have claimed that right as our own to determine what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. Or to think that since you've forgiven us, we may as well sin since you're going to forgive us. Father, forgive us for even that, if that be our attitude. But we pray, Lord, that today our hearts would be filled with gratefulness and thanksgiving at what you have done, reaching into the muck and mire of human existence, into the valley of dry bones, and calling us to life through the preaching of the gospel, that Christ would be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.